So in deep in the middle of a retreat like this, it's always kind of amazing to me. I kind of rediscover it each retreat, whether I'm taking the retreat or helping to support the retreat. How much stuff goes on for everybody? You know, like how much comes up for people? You think you're just going to come and sit and walk and it seems simple enough, just be aware of whatever happens or you could even just watch your breath. And really, so many people have talked about the roller coaster and so, so much kind of mental anguish and grief and people are describing deep suffering habits of mind and heart that are coming up. At other times, real experiences of joy or peace or some kind of insight and then two seconds later it's different again. Right? You can realize, it's amazing, really, just sitting there and walking and all this is going on. And so, does it ever come up? And we say, whatever happens, okay, great, don't we, are you aware of it? Good. Right? That, that's basically all we say. Did you notice it? Great, okay, that's the practice. <laughs> Can you start to wonder, why, really? I mean, is this really, <laughs> what's the point? Maybe you don't, you know, in which case this talk is wasted. But anyway, that's what I'm going to try and talk a little bit of one way. It reminded me what I was just saying, what a teacher of mine said years ago, not a Buddhist teacher, but he said, uh, kind of joking, but in the light of steady awareness, all of the snakes come out of their holes. So you notice, uh, real snakes are coming out too. Apparently there's been rattlesnakes sighted all over the place here. You know, so I don't know if it's our steady awareness or if it was the sun's steady awareness, but anyway. So beautiful snakes, weird looking snakes, snakes you'd really rather not see. It's like, come on up, join the party. Come into the light of awareness. So what's the point? Nyoshul Ken Rinpoche said, The main purpose of these Dharma teachings is to find out what is the nature of the non-deluded mind-heart as well as how the deluded mind-heart works. Meditation practices work to uncover our innate wisdom and purity by recognizing the obscurations, which we've been talking about, for the changing insubstantial appearances they are thus revealing what has always been present. So those two processes I want to just, you know, give some just little ideas about, certainly not exhaustive. One, how the confused, the deluded mind works. A lot of what is going on in the, I'll say formal meditation, but in this retreat, it's all meditation, right? It's not formal versus informal, even if our mind makes that distinction. But a lot of what's happening when we're noticing all the things I mentioned earlier, with the steady awareness, we're starting to see or continuing to see. If you've been practicing for 40 years, you're just, we're just continuing in our long journey of discovering more deeply how the confused mind and heart works. And the other, the other half is starting to get a taste, a glimpse of what the non-confused heart-mind is like, this innate wisdom that is always available, but unnoticed so much of the time. Last, I don't know when it was, last year sometime, I did a month self-retreat just in, a, in my apartment, and I just had some one note I wrote down, that I actually reread. Usually I write notes in a retreat. I never reread them, just in case you guys are writing up tons of notes. Just see how, how much do you really reread them. If you do, good, good, good. Anyway, but what I wrote was that as I noticed, and I, I realized when I first started practice years ago, I was practicing, which it seems very reasonable, the motivation is to get away from to somehow change all the difficult, unwanted aspects of my life, in my mind, in my heart, my personality patterns, and to really change that, get rid of it, get away from it, as well as somehow, and this how this was going to happen was never too clear, get away from all the unpleasant things in the rest of my life as well, right? And we, we laugh, but really, bottom line, why else would we do this? Because that's what we know. That's what we know from the deluded mind. Go from the unpleasant to the pleasant and everything's going to be great. 
So that's when I started. But who I would never have been able to know. It wouldn't have made any sense. I couldn't have imagined from there that the intimation of, of freedom, the intimations, the touching, just not complete peace, but moments, you know, where you recognize, you get a glimpse of what's available, arises in a completely different way. Not, nothing to do with getting away from the things we don't like. Nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with somehow rearranging all the things so the world works better. Although we keep trying and we can, we can still act appropriately, but nothing to do with that. Never would have known that, that the way to the release in the moment of the heart is actually this, what we've been talking, just this, in a moment, just the complete being with whatever it is, even through the difficult, not in spite of, but because of, this is what's happening. That the way to peace and freedom is opening into with just this full fullness of presence without um, diluted interpretations. And not just once, I'm sorry to tell you, but again and again and again. But it gets easier because the trust is there. We really know, oh, the, the, the running away from this is actually the source of the suffering and confusion. The opening into this with fullness of presence is what allows an intimation of what the peace of mind and heart is like. But hearing that isn't going to make any difference to any of us. But that's really what this steady awareness practice can again and again lead us into noticing, knowing, beginning to trust for ourselves. And I hit something, I don't know. So this, from Ajahn Chah, very well-known quotation. I, I kept thinking about it and I couldn't find it. But it, it just, like sums up the, what I want to talk about tonight. I'm sure many of you who've been in this scene have heard it a million times. But that doesn't make it less true. <laughs> about this mind, in truth there is nothing really wrong with it. It is intrinsically pure, Within itself, this mind, this heart, same word, it's already peaceful. That the heart is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real heart mind is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind heart is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind, the heart's true nature, is none of these things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. So I want to talk about two of the very... uh, really core, I mean, there's many core ways, deep, deep habits, subtle habits of the mind, of how we get tricked and lost into moods and emotions and reactions. And there are two things, two mental qualities that the Buddha spoke about very clearly that he picked out of all the different mental experiences to highlight as something to notice as arising in every single mind moment, which is like and, you know, every millisecond, millisecond of mind moment, the mind's just arising and passing. It's not a steady state thing. Mind's an activity. Arising and passing, arising, arising. Every millisecond with different qualities arising in it. That's the only way change is possible. So these two qualities are um, Vedana, which is translated as feeling tone, and Sanya, which is translated as perception. So I just want to give little description of each and little examples of how these subtle but always arising every moment experiences when not recognized so easily take the mind and heart into getting confused and misinterpreting and moods and everything the whole nine yards so talking about vedana which i'm sure most of you are familiar with some of you not 
So just to describe, Vedana, feeling tone, is the Buddha described, first that our whole experience is these six sense experiences just arising and passing, right? We've talked about that. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing with the body, all the mental experience. And each, each arising sense experience, including the mental experience, but say take this sound, our trusty bell sound, in that moment in each of our mind streams, that hearing is experienced in the mind. It's a, it's a mental experience of having a subtle pleasant quality or unpleasant quality or neutral quality. It's really quick and fast. Now to me, this is one of the, one of the many reasons when I've been studying the, what the Buddha taught that I think he was a, an incredible genius. Because this is so fast. He's saying it's happening, occurring in every mind moment, but it's so fast we mostly don't even notice that. I'm pretty sure I never <clears throat> in my whole life would have ever picked that up if I hadn't heard and read about it and, and been taught about it, you know. So, and it's not so that sound, say it, you heard that as pleasant. That's not inherent in that sound. It's a quality of how the mind is, is receiving it in that moment. It might have been pleasant in my mind and unpleasant in Franz's. Tomorrow, Different conditions applying, in my mind, it, I'm, I might hear this, well, it's not the same sound, right? You can't step in the same river twice, but hit the bell again tomorrow and the, it might have been, uh, experience is unpleasant in my mind. So it's not a steady state thing. But so he's saying this is happening with every sense or experience. So how many times is that a day? A trillion, right? How many sense or happening all the time? And this is the... This is the rub. This is where we get into trouble. Because it's so quick and we don't really notice it, the tendency is when it's pleasant just to kind of lean into it. You know, we want more. Unpleasant, we lean back from it. We want less. We shouldn't be neutral. Huh? Neutral? Any neutral today? No, we just space right out. But the Buddha talked about, I could talk about this all day, but I won't. He, he talked about this in really interesting terms, how this tendency, unrecognized, is what's seeding the really deep habits of craving for pleasant aversion to unpleasant and delusion, the habits that we've been talking about that so underlie and distort our perception and interpretation of things, because it just seems right. So, short, in this one sutta discourse, he starts out by asking, what's the difference? What do you think is the difference between a completely awakened person and someone who's not? So that gets the attention. And he said the difference, he said, uh, an awakened person experiences pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral Vedana, feeling tones. So does what did I say first? Whichever I said first, the other one also. Did I say awakened person? An unawakened person also does. So just in case you thought when you get enlightened, no more unpleasant Vedana, forget about it. The same is experienced by all people. So what's the difference? And this is the really interesting, because I like it because it describes how these habits come to be in our heart and mind. So when... Well, the translation is an untaught worldling, that's an unawakened person, is touched by a, say, an unpleasant, a painful bodily feeling. So just start with physical, it's easier. An unpleasant physical feeling. The tendency is though to worry, to grieve, to lament, to beat your breast, to weep and be distraught. Can you relate to that? He's not saying you get a little bit upset. He's really, he's laying it on because that's what we do. So he says it's as if you were hit with an arrow, one arrow in the physical arrow, and then we shoot ourselves with a second arrow. Oh my God, what happened? How can this be? Oh, my knee's going to break. I've got to go on and on and on. So this is the first thing, as if we shoot ourselves with a second arrow when we experience an unpleasant experience. Then we don't stop there. So that person experiences two arrows. Then having been touched by that unpleasant or painful feeling, the mind resists and resents it. 
So then in one who resists and resents that unpleasant, that painful feeling, the underlying tendency, the underlying habit of resistance against unpleasant feeling comes to underlie the heart, the mind. So he's just really describing the process. It just doesn't happen once in a while, but it comes to be the kind of unconscious habit. Painful, unpleasant experience comes, there's this lamenting, beating the breast, the resistance, and so then the resistance comes to be a habit we don't even notice. It just feels right, doesn't it? When something's unpleasant, you think, well, of course I move away from it, you know? What, are we here to hurt ourselves? It just seems absolutely true and right. Then he goes on, though, and this is even more interesting to me. Under the impact of that unpleasant, painful feeling, a person then proceeds to search out sensual happiness. Why? Because an unawakened person does not know of any other escape from painful, unpleasant feeling except the enjoyment of sense happiness. So then in such a person, the underlying tendency, the underlying habit to crave, to lust for pleasant feelings comes to underlie the mind, the heart. So you get a sense of that? Can you relate in yourself how when there's something unpleasant, it seems like the natural thing to do is to go and have a pleasant experience? Just have that in mind as you go through the next days and see how that works. So he says, the person does not know, according to facts, the arising and ending of these feelings, the pleasant and the unpleasant. We don't understand the arising and ending of the feelings. And we don't understand the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with these feelings. And so delusion comes to be a habit underlying the mind. So I'll just finish with the sutta, then I'll talk about it. So in the case of a, of a, a well-taught noble disciple, an awakened person, when they're touched by a painful feeling, they just don't do anything else. They don't worry, they don't grieve, they don't lament. They don't need to go and look for sense happiness to avoid feeling the unpleasant feeling. It is one kind of feeling they experience, a bodily one, but not a second one. And so they do not experience the, oh, um, uh, let's see. Uh, Those of us who are in this habit of resisting unpleasant, craving for pleasant, he said, we experience uh, these feelings as if chained to them, as if joined to them. We really suffer from them, these feelings. Someone who isn't, who's awakened, feels the feeling, And it's just that. Nothing else is created in the mind or heart around it. Pleasant, unpleasant, it's just this. And so they experience that feeling as one who is not chained to it, who is not bound to it, who is not joined to it. It's just this. And that's the the gratification, the danger, the escape, the gratification is, yes, pleasant is pleasant. We enjoy it. He's not saying pleasant is wrong. A lot of times people think the Buddhist teaching is we shouldn't appreciate or enjoy the pleasant because then we start craving. That's not what he's saying. Yeah, we may start craving, but we can bring in awareness and be aware of that. That's okay. We don't have to live in mortal fear of craving because for one thing, it's going to come. For the second thing, Fear isn't any better than craving. I mean, <laughs> you trade craving for fear, you didn't really get anywhere with that one. But what we can do is bring in awareness. So, um, so yeah, he's not saying, so the, the gratification, there is gratification in the pleasant. The danger, of course, that with these feelings, they last that amount of time. It's so quick, the pleasant and the unpleasant. They may keep coming back, but they last that amount of time. There's no steady state thing to put our trust in for any kind of ongoing gratification. That's the danger. If a pleasant feeling, you had unpleasant, you could search for the pleasant, you could get a hold of it, and then you were happy and everything was okay from then on, there would be no problem. It doesn't work that way. But we tend not to notice until we're really looking, right? Then that's the escape. So the escape, 
The escape, he says, is realizing, is abandoning the craving for the, uh, for the pleasant, the resistance to the unpleasant. And that's not an act of will. That's just when, when awareness sees what's really going on in that moment, just for one moment, the craving dissipates because it doesn't make sense. So I'll talk about that just a little bit. But just exploring that. There was something I was going to say, but I lost it. So the habits, though, that come from this are, go really far really fast. So there's a moment of pleasant. It just seems like, correct me if you don't relate to this, but the sense of pleasant as good, as right, as the way things are supposed to go, unpleasant as wrong, as bad, a mistake, that just seems to be like, of course, so normal, so obvious. So that when many of us, or at many times, not always, but when we're evaluating an experience or evaluating something in life, how much of the rightness of it is really around because it's pleasant? How much of the wrongness of it? How much of the stuff that even during this day you find your mind has been raging against in some way or the other, all the myriad ways the mind and heart can find to express resistance to the unpleasant, and very complex good stories that we can really buy into. How much, if you really look underneath, did it start from an unpleasant feeling, an unpleasant experience, and it's so obvious to us that that's wrong. Because this has been such a habit through our whole life and it's certainly inculcated from, you know, all the different avenues in society. So it's, it's, it's just accepted. So when I say I came to practice with the sense that I want to get away from all this unpleasant stuff in my personality and that clearly that's all a mistake and that it ought to be possible to do that, I know I'm not the only one with that delusion. What I didn't know is that the freedom would be from seeing through that delusion, not that, that actually it's impossible in this world, in these bodies, with this mind and heart, to always have pleasant. It's just impossible. You won't believe me and that's okay. Keep looking. This is the power of mindful awareness, to look and see what's going on. But this is what keeps us because the fact is, the feeling tone is so quick, right? It just moves like that. Ajahn Buddha Dasa was a, um, he was really a wonderful Thai forest monk. He died in the late 1990s. And he had a, a forest monastery in Thailand, in southern Thailand, Wat Mok. It was mostly you just would stay out in nature. He didn't do a lot of formal meditation teaching, but slight, let the silence and stillness of nature teach, which I think is pretty far out. I spent some time there when I was a nun. I know Franz spent some time there too. Um, anyway, he say he was very, very learned as well. He says, so just explore in your steady awareness practice. You start to tune into Vedana. Explore the fleetingness of it, how quickly it comes and goes, pleasant feeling. How quick. And then sometimes just reflect on your life a little bit. Think of some of the big choices you've made, the big things you've chosen in your life. How much of it came down to thinking this way is going to be more pleasant feeling? I mean, we don't think it quite that clearly, but how much of it comes down to that? It's really interesting just to look. This is not to look at it with judgment just to look and see what's going on. But because the mind opens and changes so quickly, this, and, and our habit is not to just bring simple, steady awareness to the process. Our habit is so deep to move away from the unpleasant, just like that. That's just so obvious that as soon as there's an unpleasant thing, the craving comes up for something pleasant. And if there's any way possible, as soon as that craving, that leaning in, that tanha, that thirst comes up, we act on it, right? If we can, whatever little thing it might be, we act on it. And that acting on it keeps us from recognizing the process. 
But the acting on it, the danger is, of course, even if you get it, like people were talking about, you know, this yearning for a cup of tea and noticing the wanting, and you go down and have the tea, you have the tea. Is the tea, maybe it was as pleasant as you thought it was going to be. But no matter how pleasant that tea is, at some point, it's over, right? Then you're left with your mind and heart again. The tea's gone. And if you're really paying attention, the pleasantness, how long does food stay pleasant when you're eating it, right? Really pay attention. How many chews does it stay pleasant? It just turns into this mush, 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 you know, and you've got to swallow fast to get to the next pleasant moment. But that's the thing. There's always, we can lean into the next pleasant moment, the next pleasant moment, the next pleasant moment. And so this hides what's really going on. And we don't really stop and look at it until you either do something stupid like come on a meditation retreat where we force you to sit and take away or something big happens in life and you can't, you can't get to a pleasant moment that hides the unpleasant. But then we're thrown for a loop because we don't know how to be with the unpleasant without being bound by it. We don't know how to be with the pleasant without being bound by it, bound by craving, bound by aversion. So here, part of what's going on when some of these snakes are coming out of the hole, pick the littler ones, is we're learning how to just, you know, find in the heart and the mind moment, you know, just the willingness to rest with this unpleasant for a minute. When we talk about the, just a simple moment of awareness that isn't distorted by aversion or greed, it's just for that moment touching the unpleasant, that's huge. That's a real shift just for that moment, starting to be an intimation that there's another way. There's another way of being in this world, in this mind and body that doesn't entail having to get so, you know, reactive every time something's unpleasant. It doesn't entail being afraid of it. And when the mind isn't so distorted, if it's something unpleasant, difficult, and it's harmful and we can move to change it, well, that's quite obvious, and we do so. So it's not like, um, like stupid awareness. You have to stay and never move, but we can, we can move out of intelligence, not out of craving that just hides the whole process. You get a sense of what I mean. So this is a whole different way of being. To me, it's, it's always, when I first read that, that discourse, that line that, you know, the unawakened person doesn't know of any other escape from unpleasant feeling tone except to lust after pleasant. I just, I just find that so sad, so poignant, because it just describes so many of us in this world. If you look at the world, this is really what the whole concept of samsara, you know, just the cycles of existence of un- unhappiness and wanting and getting, and then it's gone away and wanting again and getting, and it's gone away and it just keeps going. And that, that we're so used to that, that it's a really common thing for people to say um, when we're, you know, when we're talking in retreats and stuff, really common in different kinds of ways, that the question comes up, well, if, I, if there's no craving, if there's no aversion, then what? And I remember someone saying years ago in a three-month, well, if there's no craving and aversion, what? I just sit in my room and never act for the rest of my life? That's what breaks my heart. As if craving and aversion are the only mental states, the only motivation for action. That's how ubiquitous they can be in our experience when we're, when we're not really looking. We think, how much of part of the reason we are so harping on relaxed awareness. Have you noticed that we say that once in a while? Rel- okay, good. I'm glad you noticed. <laughs> We're going to keep on saying it too. We're not going to stop saying it. Because mostly, I mean, we're not all the same, but many of us, we bring our same habits of mind to meditation as we do to anything. And how do we know how to do something with full intention? You, by gum, you just strive, do, strive, push, and we're, we're really putting in, you know, 100% effort very sincerely and not noticing the craving, the trying to make something happen. And we wonder why you get headaches, why, you know, we feel like our body's snapping in two, why you think I never want to meditate again once the bell rings, let me out of here. 
But then luckily the mind changes and you find yourself coming back to the next sitting. Here today, you got a lot of time in between. But you're coming back to the next retreat, right? Now, about the fourth day, now is the time to think, oh, now I, why did I come again? Now I remember what the beginning of the retreat was like, why I never wanted to come to another retreat. I'm remembering that now. But then it'll change. So, now I lost my train of thought completely on that one. But <laughs> completely. <laughs> uh, what? Oh, right, not just desire, thank you. He was listening. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> We're not always that keyed in, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, so thinking desire is the only way we can do something. So finding, what about compassion? What about simple wisdom? What about something, just a neutral willingness to do? The body's hungry and we go to eat. It doesn't have to be a frenzy of craving every time we go to eat. Sometimes it's just time to go eat and we eat and we can enjoy it. It doesn't mean it's always craving when you appreciate the pleasant, but we can learn to recognize the difference because when the craving's there, it's really, it feels like this going forward. And it really narrows the vision, you know, and it's all about the craving, as Steve said the other night, only sees the pleasant aspect. The, the uh, aversion only sees the unpleasant aspect. And it just doesn't just lead to craving, it leads into moods and emotions and reactions, and it completely distorts our perception, which is where I'm going to go now, into Sanya. But... The process of steady awareness, what we're really trying to give us the time and space to explore here over and over, because you can see how quick and subtle this process of Vedana and the aversion and clinging can be, how much we just need to practice the awareness, an alternate way. But what starts to happen, it really does start to happen. I can, I've heard it in a lot of you already, even if you don't recognize it, is that the the, I don't know, not the interest, but, but really where the attention goes, where the, the trust starts to move from craving and aversion. Because really that's, in a lot of ways, you could say that's our refuge. That's where our trust is. When the chips are down, you crave, you averse, <laughs> whatever. That's what we know how to do. It starts to switch to like a, a trust in awareness. And for me, it's really like a love of awareness. I can be with the with the wanting and this and see the wanting for something or the aversion, the fear of something. Okay, awareness of it. And there's a sense of appreciating the awareness more than I'm believing in the aversion and the craving. It really lets the awareness become stronger. It starts to get its own momentum. And we start to see more clearly, start to recognize these things happening. I mean, the steady awareness allows wisdom to see what's happening. And in those moments where you really see it, for example, dying to go get a cup of tea, pick the simple things. It's good to start with the simple things. Don't start with the most complicated thing in your life. Just the little simple things here. Or someone gave a great example in, a, in, in the group today of just seeing a, uh, anger come up about such a simple little thing. And realizing the thing that the anger came up about was so simple they couldn't take it seriously. So you see how the process is working in the mind. And that's really where insight's beginning, where we see, oh, this is a habit. This is the process. It's not about this little thing that happened. So like the cup of tea. How many times would I be walking and think, I really have to go have a cup of tea. It's so strong. And just stop and be with the wanting. That doesn't occur to us in daily life that we could do that, but you can. Just be with the wanting. And see how it is for you. Sometimes... People think wanting or experience wanting as, as being actually pleasant. So maybe it is for you. Look and see. For me, the actual wanting itself, not the idea of the thing wanted, the actual wanting is extremely unpleasant. You're off balance. You're, and, and you want to go get the thing. Why? So the wanting will stop. When the wanting stops, it's, ah, it's peaceful. It's nice. We think, well, that tea was so great. I'm so peaceful. It's because the wanting stopped. So if you just keep walking and noticing wanting, 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 keep wa- sooner or later, I promise, the wanting will dissipate. Because everything dissipates. I'm not saying it won't come back in a tenth of a second. 
I'm not saying how long it'll be till it dissipates, but it will dissipate. Keep awareness going and notice the difference. And notice wanting doesn't kill us. It's just an unpleasant experience and we're so in the habit of unpleasant jump away that we don't stop and look at it. So, okay, wanting's like this. It's not so bad. I play with it sometimes, like when I'm just playing around or go into a, like go, go to the supermarket when you're really hungry. <laughs> but don't buy anything. <laughs> and just go in and play with the wanting and then walk out. You know, it's not going to kill you. Just play with it, little things like that. <laughs> okay, so then moving to sanya, perception. And this is equally to me, equally interesting. So perception, we've talked about that, right? It's this, again, it's another mental quality arising in every moment of consciousness with every sense door experience. And uh, the, the Buddhist script, perception is just that moment of recognition. It's based on memory and our past experiences, right? So I'd recognize this as a bell. You can see that perception is conditioned because someone could come in here from somewhere else and have no clue this was a bell. And so the perception, we think our perception is accurate, but it's not necessarily accurate at all. So it can be um, distorted by confusion, by delusion, by not having enough information. So for instance, coming in here and not knowing what this is, what I notice is the mind, it likes to know, so it makes something up. It kind of fills in the gap. Oh, that's a really big begging bowl. I don't know how the monk could walk around with that because it's kind of shaped like the begging bowls they carry around in, in Thailand. You just make it up. I've seen my mind do that. Somebody's walking by there. If I don't have my glasses on, I can tell it's a person about, about, but that's it. But there'll be some little flick of some sign of something and the monk, oh, that's so-and-so. Now the chances are so-and-so slim, but you think it's so-and-so and then the mind, it, it goes on from there all the reactions and the thoughts and everything, but that's a perception that's distorted by delusion. Perception distorted by wanting, by craving, by seeing the pleasant, as Steve was saying the other night. I'm reminded of a friend who's talking about, about the second or third year of her marriage. I was good friends with both of them, and I said, well, how's it going? And she said, well, it's going, but you know, it's, it's now the work's starting because the love glasses are off. <laughs> so you know how that is. You have what? <laughs> how come I didn't see all this other stuff that was going on before? It's so obvious now. <laughs> you just hope that the, the hate glasses don't go on, right? <laughs> That's when it's divorce time. Then all of a sudden you only see the negative stuff. But this is perception that's distorted by the kalashas. So this, the habit of wanting the pleasant and craving, it can really distort perception. But perception doesn't just stop with that recognition. As the Buddha said, what we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we complicate with associations and memories and projections and all of that. And then these complications and these thoughts become out of control and assail a person, attack a person. Have you ever had that experience? You're just sitting here and your thoughts are attacking you, attacking you. Come back to the beginning of perception. And it can go into moods and a whole world. Perception describes and defines our world. It's a useful tool. We need it, you know? We need to know, like, it's good that I know I'm Carol and my job is to get up here and talk. It's good you don't all think you're Carol and we're all trying to get up here and talk. It doesn't work, you know, we take turns. It's good you come in, you know the Zafu, you know where you sit. That's all very useful, especially when our perceptions kind of agree with each other. When they don't agree with each other and they harden into views, that's when it's big trouble. So I'll just tell you this little story. I often tell this because it's a great example of how perception goes right away into a description of the world and mood and emotion and suffering. A friend told me this. She was sitting on a retreat, her first retreat, uh, many years ago in Switzerland, and there weren't any centers, the Posner retreat, weren't any centers, so they rented like old summer camp houses where 
uh, up in the up in the mountains. So these are old wooden houses, not well built, with no insulation because they don't use them in the winter. So she uh, it was a so very structured sitting walking. The sitting period and the sitting room they were in was on the on the what we would say this would we say the second floor or is that how they would anyway. Not this floor, the next floor up. I get confused here and there. Anyway, up on the second floor. And right below it was the walking room. And because it was an old wooden house, it was really creaky. And every time anyone was moving around, it made really loud, creaking, popping sounds. So she was sitting, everyone was sitting. And she was really finally, finally getting into her breath, you know, really having a good sitting. And then there started to be all these creaking, popping sounds, and it's like, oh, somebody's walking downstairs. And it's right away, this, it was, so it was unpleasant. I mean, she wasn't tracking all of that, just, you know, thinking that ruining my meditation. They're walking downstairs, and this is the sitting time, and everyone's supposed to be sitting. How dare they be walking downstairs during the sitting time, and crack, crack, pop, pop, and really getting angry and upset and self-righteous and the whole nine yards. And this takes like a tenth of a second, right, from the perception of someone walking. And so, but there was nothing to do because she also wouldn't dare get up in the sitting and go down and yell at the person because social pressure is sometimes a good thing. So she sat there. So there was nothing else to do. She said, okay. Somehow awareness came back in and just noticed the whole thing. So, okay, okay, just let it go. Just come back and be with the breath, just as it is. So awareness, this this beginner's mind, awareness is just fresh and new, not carrying anything, but just meet this breath completely new and fresh. So she was doing that, just feeling the breath, really present with it. And as the breath came in and her chest expanded, she noticed she was leaning against the wall. And every time she breathed in, the wall started cracking and popping. And that was the noise she was hearing that she thought was someone walking. So miraculously, the anger all went away. That's actually how insight works. You know, with accurate perception, all the stories and the version and the mood, it all just vanishes because it doesn't make any sense. This is what's going on in our minds and hearts an incredible amount of the time. And don't believe me, you think I'm projecting, okay, just keep looking and seeing. When we're suffering, from wanting, from aversion, from spinning, from what that person is doing, from what I'm doing, and why can't I be different? We mostly don't, without awareness, we don't you know, even have the ability to see the whole chain. And, and a lot of time, I mean, perception is really quick. Vedana is really quick. Sometimes it's down the road. But even being able to, what, you know, she was way down the road, they're all upset and angry, but awareness could come back don't try to retract, but just land with awareness right here, right now, just as it is. With that freshness, reality reveals itself. So, like Dogen Zenji said, if you can't find the truth right where you are, where do you expect to find it? This is the power of awareness, this simple awareness when it's not distorted by wanting, by aversion, by delusion. And we can't always tell when it is, but we can keep remembering keep reaccessing. And this is the part of the, the, the second part of the practice where the, the meditation's revealing these habits. And I'm just touching on them, but really explore these. They're, they're, these are fun, especially perception and watching the whole story. That's really fun to explore. If you don't take it personally, see how fast, how far the mind gets and how upset you get. And then sometimes you can even play with it. I've done this on retreat. I remember one retreat I was, years ago, I was sitting in, in my room and there's this sound of crickets. It was in the autumn. You know crickets? The, do they have crickets here? This was in Massachusetts. There's something about crickets that's a real autumnal sound to me. And something about that, plus I was long, long in a retreat, that led to you know, kind of a real nostalgia, that sense of autumn and the summer going. And mind you, this is New England, so winter's really coming in. And things are dying, and then I'm dying, and every, you know the whole deal. <laughs> so crickets, crickets, hearing, hearing, and all the mood and the sadness and the whole nine yards. So then I thought, let's just change that, change that. The crickets, and then I had a thought, 
isn't that lovely? I'm out here in nature, and there's the crickets and the peace, and then all these happy feelings came in nature, and I thought, oh, we're just making it all up, you know? So you could really just play with this and see. It's kind of fun. See if it's really true. Perception, that's the beginning of how it goes. But because, again, it's so fast and so quick, and the habit of our mind is we kind of like to know. Like I said, I'll see somebody in my mind, I'll go, it's so-and-so. Why can't the mind just go, don't know? Why does someone come in and say, have to, to say, this is a, a bell or this is a begging bowl? Why can't we come in and go, don't know? We can. But there's this kind of this sense of, of liking to settle, you know, not, not being so comfortable hanging out in the not knowing. Maybe that's not true for you. But Sansani, this Korean Zen teacher, used to say, only don't know. Only don't know. But we, we, we like to know better. You know, it's like, this is this and that is that. And when what we, what we perceive, we think about, what we think about then hardens into views, and this is how it is. This is a bell and nothing else. This is that person and nothing else. This is how my mind is. I'm an aversive type of person. I'm an impatient type of person. This is how it is, you know? And it just kind of gets solidified, and we don't even recognize that. And then that gets carried over. And this is what's really interesting, when that's hardened into a view that we don't recognize the view. We believe it. Often then, the mind of the awareness isn't quite open to, to recognize perceptions that run counter to the view. I call it selective perception. So notice, for example, if you happen to be in the view of self-judging. A lot of people have mentioned that. Notice when that's the, the thought, that, that negativity, that's aversion, that's distorting the perception. And the perception is whatever's coming up in your mind and heart is proof, right, of what's wrong with you in whatever way your mind does that. Notice at that time, do memories start to come up of all the wonderful things you've done? If you walk in and someone smiles at you, do you say, oh, that's so nice. You think, oh, boy, that deluded person smiling at me. If they knew what was really going on in here, they'd never look at me again, you know? <laughs> and it's like whatever perception doesn't fit, sometimes we don't even let it in. Once I was teaching a retreat years ago, and uh, well, as you see, I sit in a chair. I've done that for years. And this was, I don't know, six days into the retreat or something, and a, a woman was talking to us, who's the other teacher, and was sat, just was dying of pain on the cushion, you know, 45 minutes sit, 45 minutes, dying of pain, sitting cross-legged. I mean, not just a little pain and exploring it, but really beyond the beyond. So I said to her, James said, well, why don't you sit in a chair? She goes, sit in a chair? You can't sit in a chair. You're supposed to sit on a cushion. Everyone's sitting on a cushion. And uh, James said, Carol's sitting in a chair. And it was like, it was like she had never noticed that. Never noticed. And this was like five days in. This wasn't like two minutes into the Oh, you could see her whole face just, oh. Oh, she's sitting in a chair. This was before the days when half of the room was sitting in a chair. But still, <laughs> it's like, how can we so not see what's in front of us? And we trust our perception so implicitly. So just I'll just plant that there. So the hallucinations of perception that we don't see that really keep us spinning, and each of these is a talk in itself, is we don't perceive the changing nature of things. We perceive permanence. We may intellectually say, yeah, 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 I know everything changes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But on the perception level, the, the three characteristics Steve spoke, we don't perceive impermanence. We don't perceive the unsatisfactory quality of things. That's why craving keeps leading us by the nose. We keep thinking it's going to do it. We don't perceive the um, impersonal nature of things, the out-of-controllability. We keep thinking somehow we're going to be able to get this mind and body doing what we want. We just don't perceive that. That's why thinking about it isn't enough. That can get us looking, that can get us to trust the awareness, but it's not enough to change the perception because perception's below the level of thought. It can trigger thought, but it's actually 
below the level of thought. So these are two of the ways, subtle but really quite profound, that as we are cultivating steady awareness, we're really starting to see how the deluded mind works. And the second part of that then, where did I put it? Is starting to recognize, to uncover the innate wisdom, innate purity. And this is the piece that I just want to end by pointing to, the steadiness of awareness. Why also this simple everyday awareness is actually so profound and transformative. It's so kind of ordinary, you know, you're, you're, all, you're starting to really notice it. You're starting to get a sense of how kind of ordinary it is, how easy it is to overlook. But this is the shift that'll start to really allow to come more and more into, into knowing, into perception, into our heart, mind, the, the real intrinsic uh, purity that allows the wisdom to arise. So instead of, we're switching the energy we're switching the trust, really, from being so overly involved in all the objects of experience, the pleasant and unpleasant, we're overly involved and we're enamored of our reactions to them, which is also an experience, our perceptions, what I think about this, what I think about that, what I think about me, what I think about you, what, just so engaged with our reactions, over-involved with the experience in a way. So it's like we're switching the real trust to the awareness. The awareness and the object coming together. But we're doing, it's not exactly foreground background shift, but it's kind of like a trust shift. So you still, we still know what the objects are. We know what's happening, but it's like, fine, awareness of, awareness of, awareness of. And this simple awareness, without looking, don't go looking for something, that's just wanting. But just starting to kind of, the more we're just letting it in, there's awareness and object, awareness and object, not just object, object, object. The more it, it starts to kind of spread out and just make itself known in a way, a moment of awareness. It's not a thing, it's really an activity. But we just kind of, I don't know what words to use, can feel into it, has a sense of, different kind of senses, but it's a knowing, awake, alert, when it's not, not distorted by greed or craving. It's just this kind of, someone described it as squeaky clean. You know, you just kind of feel like you're, the lenses of our heart and mind are squeaky clean. And whatever's arising, arises, and does its thing, and goes away. And awareness is really right there with it. It's not like off at a distance. It knows what's happening. It's feeling it fully. It arises, it does its thing, it goes away and we're not fettered by it, we're not chained to it in either way. So starting to really, I don't know, get more interested in this, more trusting of this, and one way that I find helpful is to just plant a seed there in the back of your mind heart to recognize in those moments here not just the big, you know, things I've been talking about, the difficulties, seeing the deluded habits, but I'm sure you must have had at least one moment, not that you had it, there was a moment somewhere where nothing special was happening, but it was just feeling either peaceful or calm. Nature's very helpful for that, you know, but just kind of, ah. You could put different words on it. Sometimes the word is just cool the coolness of no kalatia acting out, the coolness of not reaching out to experience and getting all involved, or peace. Or it could be joyful, it could be just calm, it could be um, just cooled out, it could be equanimous, different words. The word's already too much. But noticing that. Nature helps a lot because we tend to not, you can get involved into wanting and disliking and all, but it's a little easier just to feel that. And I noticed on my first few retreats, there would be lots of moments like that. But then I would make the, go with the old habit of attributing that. And it's kind of pleasant, but it's not exactly pleasant. It's just more really, it's really like the peace of non getting caught up in things. But I would attribute it. Then I'd go, this is really pleasant. And I would attribute it to 
the beauty of the nature, the fact that I'm silent, something to do with a particular experience. So I'd always go and attribute it back to the object or back to the particular mood I was in, which is also an object, not really noticing because awareness is just so available and so nothing special, not noticing that. Not noticing that what was actually going on was the, the piece of simple awareness not getting all involved in whatever was occurring, but knowing what was occurring. I always, not wish, but I would have loved it if that had been, like someone had mentioned that to me like, you know, 15 years ago, but it probably wouldn't have made any difference. You just notice it when you notice it. So here, don't grab a hold of something, but not just, not just bringing in awareness when we're suffering, not just bringing in awareness when you're sitting and trying to do something or trying to see these patterns, which is interesting, that's far out. But the times when nothing special is going on, you know, Steve's been saying over and over, just the mundane things, fine. The things are mundane. Awareness is never mundane. Awareness is fresh and new in every moment. It is something that Deepama said. Remember Deepama? She was this amazing little Bengali lady, a grandma, when we knew her. She's like maybe four feet tall, literally. And um, very, very profound um, practice and understanding in her mind. Just, her, she said her mind was filled with love and concentration and peace. That was it. But she's living a life. She's a widow with a daughter and grandson to support in a tiny little apartment in Calcutta. And uh, she was a bundle of energy, I tell you, a bundle of. <laughs> Once we went to visit her in Bodh Gaya, just the year before she died, a bunch of us, and we were with Joseph Goldstein, who's a, a long-term student of hers. And she says to him, Joseph, you should sit for the weekend. And he's going, oh, well, you know, I'm busy. She, you know, I'll, maybe next weekend I'll sit. She says, no, sit down for the weekend <laughs> and get up at the end of the weekend. <laughs> so Joseph being Joseph just laughs and she just looked at him and goes, don't be lazy. <laughs> she was totally serious. To her, that was nothing. So anyway, she said, now where did I have what she said? Oh, yes. Nothing is mundane. Awareness is always fresh and clean. It includes everything without being distorted by anything. Like Ajahn Sumedho says, awareness is the point that includes. So far from being, because we're not all involved, some dull, who cares, you don't know what's happening, it's just the opposite of that. Like so... Like she says, alive, fresh, clean. It's not like not caring. It's more like Byron Katie says, it's like loving what is. What is, is. What is not, is not. And don't add anything extra. I got that from Guy Armstrong's new book. I'll just put in a plug for that. It's a very nice, <laughs> nice book on, on emptiness. So I just want to end with this from Nyoshal Kempo Rinpoche. Unfabricated ordinary awareness unadulterated by effort and modification, naked, fresh, vivid, and totally natural. What could be simpler than this, to rest at home and at ease in total naturalness? What could be simpler? Apparently a lot of things, but this is one's birthright, one's true nature. It's not something missing, to be sought for and obtained, but it's at the very heart of our being. It is actually inseparable from our uncontrived everyday awareness. What could be simpler than this? To rest at home and at ease in total naturalness. So let's just sit for a moment.
So whatever posture you're in the next half hour, just hang out in total uncontrived naturalness. And if you're awake... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.